Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we frankly read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are formaldehyde-filled jars in which a director's unaltered vision can sit unchanged and fully preserved. In hiring a crack novelizationist early in the artistic process, filmmakers can pay insurance towards the possibility of treasured scenes being cut, chopped, and screwed or compromised. When these dreaded cuts do in fact come to pass, novelizations bring omnidirectional growth to a film's sanitized but still kick-ass theatrical iteration. These books outwardly metastasize, tumescent with the missing scenes reinserted back into the narrative framework, while also sprouting inwards by interrogating the interiority of artificial intelligence, a discussion which implicitly declares AI to be sentient life just by virtue of giving it an inner monologue. Novelizations are savvy complements to film, providing new morsels for devoted viewers while simultaneously being completely capable of standing on their own. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Hannah Blackman, and it's just us today. With a it's guest. just us. <laughs> uh, Aliens is a 1986 science fiction action film written and directed by James Cameron. The story follows Ellen Ripley, who, having survived the alien attack from the previous film, Alien, is discovered 70 years later by the somehow still intact Wayland yutani Corporation. When the company loses contact with the colony on the very planet that Ellen Ship found the titular alien, Ripley accompanies a military unit of really hot friends to investigate what seems to be a complete extermination of the planet's population. She is soon to discover that the behavior of an alien hive is vastly more threatening than one on its lonesome own. Ultimately, not even Ripley's experience can prepare them for aliens using the buddy system. That's top-notch over me. Thank you. The novelization... <laughs> the novelization of Aliens was written by Alan Dean Foster, based on the screenplay by James Cameron, and the story by James Cameron and David Geller? Mm -hmm. Sure, why not? Think? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and Walter Hill, based on the characters created by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett. It was published by 20th Century Fox and Titan Books in 1986. Who is Alan Dean Foster? Alan Dean Foster is the prolific writer of many science fiction novels, both original and related to existing IP. He was born in New York City in 1946, but raised in California. He received a BA in political science from UCLA in 1968. Foster began his career as an author when a letter he sent to Arkham Collection was purchased by the editor and published in the magazine in 1968. His first novel, The Tear Aim Krang, introduced the Human X Commonwealth, a galactic alliance between humans and an insect-like race called Thranks. I, I feel like uh, as uh, a people, we've moved away from science fiction books that just have really, really alienating titles like the Tar Aim Krang that just yeah. give you absolutely nothing to go on. Uh, Foster probably would for the best. Yes, probably... <laughs> Probably, like, for the best for everyone, including, like, the best for sales. Yeah. Foster would continue to revisit this universe and these characters in his original works throughout the years. In addition to writing Aliens, Foster was the ghostwriter of the original novelization of Star Wars, which was credited solely to George Lucas. When asked if it was difficult for him to see Lucas get all the credit for Star Wars, Foster said, 
Not at all. It was George's story idea. I was merely expanding upon it. Not having my name on the cover didn't bother me in the least. It would be akin to a contractor demanding to have his name on a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Foster also wrote the follow-up novel Splinter of the Mind's Eye, written with the intention of being adapted as a low-budget sequel to Star Wars if the film was unsuccessful. However, Star Wars was a blockbusting success, and The Empire Strikes Back was developed instead. Foster's story relied heavily on abandoned concept that appeared in Lucas's early treatments for the original film. Foster returned to the Star Wars franchise for the prequel-era novel The Approaching Storm in 2003, and also wrote the novelization of the first sequel trilogy film, The Force Awakens. In 2020, Foster, together with an organization called the SFWA, alleged that the Walt Disney Company, which acquired the rights to Star Wars and Aliens via their acquisition of Lucasfilm and 20th Century Fox, had not been paying him royalties for ebook sales of his books. When Disney failed to respond to this accusation, the SFWA went public with the accusations, stating that it was shameful that they needed to rally fans to get Disney to pay writers. This has been resolved as of May 2021, with Foster and several other novelizationists emerging victorious and being paid out an unknown sum. Foster, now in his 70s, has remained in the novelization game, most recently penning Alien Covenant. This is a guy, of course, that we're going to recur with a bunch. This is like a Deborah Cheel or a, um, a Peter David. There's just no avoiding Alan Dean Foster. We already have another one on the books for a future season. Uh, joining us again today, uh, a returning guest. We're very happy to have him back. The uh, author, of course, of the Bloodshot novelization, as well as his new book, Spec Ops Zed. Uh, <laughs> Gavin G. It. Smith. I did it. <laughs> author Gavin G. Smith. Hurt. It hurt. I mean, didn't you hear it like clunk out of my mouth? <laughs> it's hard. We're Americans. It's it's hard for me because even by your own rules, and I, I'm not I don't mean to just make fun of the British, but it's not like you also changed other letters to Ed and Fed, and it's it's an outlier. I, I mean, the, I, English is a patently ridiculous language from start to finish. Totally. Uh, the, the, there is no logic to it whatsoever. Um, so, I mean, I, I, uh, Spec Ops Z sounds bizarre to, to, uh, to my... I, actually, I, I'm only distracting you so we can talk about my book a little bit longer. So... <laughs> I, uh, I also, I, yeah. I also just said that you guys changed the letter to Z, which is just like <laughs> a really, really great example of like American arrogance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, we, I, well, I mean, you went Z, and we thought, well, you know, you, they, they've got the country, but damn it, we're going to decide how, how to pronounce the letters. So, you know, there you go. Absolutely. Now, uh, Gavin, you uh, originally brought up your love of the uh, Aliens novelization when we were recording the Bloodshot episode. Uh, I just want to start off by asking you, what is your relationship to this uh, book, and, and what's your history with it? So, uh, what... 
what happened uh, was, is whilst I am reasonably old, um, when uh, when Aliens came out on the cinema in the UK, and that was back when we got films quite a while after their release in the US, I was only 12 years old. So uh, with the best will in the world, I couldn't sneak into a film which was an 18. I wonder if we could uh, just in the UK, the film rating, uh, as was in the 80s, as you for universal parental guidance, 15 or 18 and 15 and 18 is just the ages you had to be. Um, and Aliens came out as an 18. These days, it would probably be a 15. But um, so, of course, there was no chance of me seeing it. I was a huge um, science fiction fan um, uh, at the time. So the best way to get a taste of it um, was to, uh, to read the novelization until it came out in VHS video, um, and at which point it was far easier to circumvent parents and watch it at somebody else's house. Um, so this was all we had, really. And this was back in the day where it took forever to go from the cinema to, um, uh, to, to VHS, to rent as a video. So between the release of the film, and we'd seen adverts, and we knew it looked amazing, and we knew it was kind of military SF, we knew it was like the, the role-playing games we played, like Traveller and Star Frontiers and things like that. And we were kind of, we were almost making up what we thought the film was, in the tabletop role-playing games that we that, that we are that we are doing, um, so but what we had was the book, um, and that that was the closest we could get to, it, probably for six months or even longer. And then when we finally got hold of it, um, I, I remember uh, me and uh, this kid I was friends with then. Uh, we watched over at his house, and we stayed up all night and watched it three times back to back. Uh, and then for a very, very long time, it was my favorite film. As soon as it came out on video, I bought it. Again, too young to buy an 18 film, but I, I was a little bit older then, and it was easier easier to pass as 18. Um, and it, it sort of still remains in, in, my, uh, in my top 10 films. My first two novels, Veteran and War in Heaven, are basically a love, a very, very long love letter, like a two hundred thousand word love letter <laughs> to Alien, and um, yeah, it's affected uh, a lot of my other, uh, a lot of my other writing as well. Um, uh, obviously, we're dealing in a sound medium, but um, behind me in the office, I'm sitting. I've got a, a, a display case, and one of the shelves is a model of the APC, um, uh, an action figure of Hicks, and an action figure of the uh, of Alien, and a sort of standalone um, H.R. Geiger um, uh, sculpture. So. Yeah, I'm I'm fully in, but I mean that was why I read novelizations because I couldn't get to see it's the same thing with films like the Terminator and whatnot. You couldn't get to see them at the cinema, and that's really weird, isn't it? Because nobody thinks to check. Yeah, you can't go and see the film, but you can go and buy a Stephen King book. What's that about? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm quite pleased for it. But anyway, that is a very long-winded explanation for my relationship with Aliens. What a great answer! Except I didn't understand the Stephen King thing at all. What? Oh, well, I mean, Steve. <laughs> There's no like parental guidance oh, on oh, the yeah. book. I you thought just you were go saying go to the library and pick up any book. 
I thought you yeah. were saying to this day you can read a Stephen King book, but there are no Stephen King movies. <laughs> no, there are Stephen King movies. There's many. Yeah. There's many. And I was thinking, like, Gavin, I understand you're talking about the past, but I think you might still be under a rock a little bit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, even when I was very young, I believe there was still Stephen King movies. Um, yes. Uh, oh, I didn't realize that, that I did just accuse you of being like 80 years old. <laughs> yes, yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, you never know how old you look to younger people, do you? So, but anyway, it was lovely to come on the podcast yeah, again. Totally. Yeah. Um, Great chat. Now, in 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 that answer that you gave, uh, you demonstrated so much love for aliens. But had you not seen the film Alien? No. No, uh, we. I saw. I saw Alien um, quite a few years after Alien. Oh my God! And I, I, I'd actually tried to see Alien, um, uh, but I mean, kind of the only access to Alien was on TV, uh, and it was on once in a blue moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suspect. I, I suspect it was in video shops, but I was like, you know, you imagine a twelve-year-old kid's like, "Mom, can I get this out?" No, no, no. Okay, right. <laughs> Um, but uh, no, so we had. Uh, um, uh, I hadn't seen Alien, and I mean, still to this day, I hugely prefer Aliens to Alien. I mean, I respect Alien um, as a groundbreaking film, as its place in cinema history, as um, one wonderfully shot and what. What have you? But Aliens is much more my kind of film yeah, than I'm Alien. Right there with you, uh, I gotta say, like Alien, I love. I, it's a great movie, but I've watched Aliens five times this year. Like I had a moment where I watched it and was like, "Oh man, I love this movie," and then I just watched it four more times within the space of about three weeks. Um, and it's <laughs> I, just a movie. Like I just love it. I love to watch it. I have a lot of fun with it in the way that, like, watching Alien is just not as much fun for me. I like it, but it's a different experience. I was watching uh, you do that on Letterboxd, Anna, and, and we, we hadn't known each other for that long, and I was like, this is this is interesting, and this is like possibly someone spiraling in a really bad way. Oh, this girl's <laughs> a freak. Yeah, well... <laughs> So I, 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 I'm, I, I, I mean, be honest, the real reason I'm here is because I was able to go to my extraordinarily patient partner and say, yeah, I'm going to be watching Aliens again. It's like, really? And you can actually hear her eyes rolling. This, this is your monthly viewing of Aliens, is it? Um, so but it's like, it's, it's for work, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, what it just whatever other like hobbies you have that you're trying to keep secret, just let us know we'll do an episode about it. <laughs> right. Um I don't think Heat has a novelization, does it? No. Oh, that would be amazing yeah. though. A, a a book that would be that would be fertile for novelizing. Um yeah, actually it really would because um uh, we're now completely off topic but I've, I mean heat's all uh, heat's all internal stuff it's all about you know the the internal world of those two men living in um uh, you know, living in sort of opposition to each other and the parallel between them so yes it would actually be quite quite interesting I can't see it happening but I am available if anybody <laughs> wants to do that There are Hannah and I have discussed this there are so many 
books that I just want to like write the filmmakers and be like, can I just write this so it exists? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I think it would be a bit difficult. Actually, be the same with James James Cameron. Not that when you're doing a novelization, you ever meet anybody like that, but you're sort of pushing your publicist, going, "If there's any, you know, if there's right. anything around this, you know, can can I meet James Cameron? Can I can I meet Michael Mann?" It's like, no, you can't. You enormous nerd. <laughs> well, you're um, you're roommates with Vin, though, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I that's a funny thing about the the bloodshot because you get the script and I was like okay there's some stuff here have you got anything else I can use so I had a lot of set photos mm-hmm. um, but you start to feel deeply I don't know if I said this the last time but you start to feel deeply voyeuristic because you're just looking at all these photographs of the same people and um, it's a kind of strange feeling that, that it, it's interesting I had a um somewhat friendly, somewhat heated back and forth with a different novelizationist a few months ago. And um, that person stated that, like, when she was writing novelizations, that she seemed to have finished movies. And it's it's interesting that, like, or at least, like, she, she'd, like, see a, a cut, you know? It's interesting that, like, you were coming in at some point in that process where you weren't even provided that. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's no... I, I, I don't think there's um, there's any hard and fast rules. Um, right. I, the whole thing is a negotiation where you try and get as much as you can for the author of the novelization, but at the same time, you're not that important in the big <laughs> scheme of things in terms of a multi-million sort of uh, uh, dollar movie. Um, so you have to work around them. For example, if we look at Aliens, um, I'm... Oh, right, we're talking about Aliens. Right, uh, right, right. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm 100% I'm 100% sure that he didn't see a cut of the film. Uh, I'm positive he only mm-hmm. saw the script. The script is available online to read, which I did almost immediately before reading the novelization, and they are yeah. so close. Like so much of the sort of like interesting flavor of the movie is just like not present in the script, um, nor in the novelization. I would say. Have either of you? I'm assuming you have seen the the extended cut that has a bunch of these scenes in it. Um, yeah. yeah. Because that I only watched it this morning, but it seems very one to one. Like almost everything that I would have say was would have said was added for the book was actually just in that cut. I so I I had a quick um, I, I I've got I've got the script um, and I had a read of the first part of it up till pretty much to get to the Sulaco this morning and I went back and had a look at um, a few of the opening bits in the novelization and what I found interesting is um, uh, Alan Dean Foster had added bits of dialogue which I certainly wouldn't mm. have I well I did. I sort of added scenes, but I added scenes with negotiation. It's not, I, I wouldn't have added dialogue into an existing scene if you see what, mm-hmm. see what I mean. So um, I, I think there are differences. He definitely included the extended stuff, which is what Cameron wanted. Um, I, I, I actually think that the, the release version is better. I think it's got more tension in it. I kind of agree uh, after having my neighbor at a party last night who, if you're listening, I, I really appreciate you doing this, but insist to me that the extended version was better and then like 
lead me over to his apartment at midnight and be like, take it home with you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I kind of agree. It's like, it's interesting. Every scene that's added is interesting, but it is a little more languid. And the beginning of the movie is just too luxurious almost where I'm like, not worried. I'm not tense. Yeah. And it, it sort of paints on the connection between Ripley as a mother and Newt, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is far more subtextual and far more implied uh, in the cinema cut. Right. And, uh, and the thing is, uh, I, think, I think when we watch the extended edition, we get sort of carried away because we're getting more information. Uh, there's a little bit more action with the sentry guns and things like that. But we forget what it was like the first time to come to Aliens not knowing not knowing it and you you know you've you know the name of the film so you know what's going to happen Mm -hmm. but it's you don't know how it's happened whereas with um cameron's extended cut you you do know what's happened uh you you see how it's happened i think the big mistake of the extended cut and this extends to the novelization um is that scene on the planet where you see the colonizers like in action they're all alive it's fine they send the family out like in the theatrical cut you don't know what's happened until ripley gets there which is much more effective to just like emerge into this totally desolate landscape where people used to live and that i mean like i'm i'm very pro extended cut um because i want to spend more time with my nice space friends like i really like all of the the you know space marines and i'm just like what if we had an extra 20 minutes with them you know um but I, I mean, I agree it's a less tense, tight movie for sure. And honestly, when I go to watch it, I tend to skip the first half hour and just start when they get on the Sulaco, which is huh. a shame. That's my bad. But that's, uh, those are my priorities. And sometimes I don't have time for a three hour movie. I need a two and a half hour movie. I thought it was interesting that uh, Alan, um, once again, <laughs> novelizationists get mad when I call them by their first name on here it's happened before but i i keep doing it um yeah i prefer mr smith oh okay mr 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 g smith um so uh yeah no i i thought it was interesting how alan dean foster had a better grasp of the tension of them finding the alien than james cameron seemed to so in the theatrical cut as hannah says you don't know what's going on until ripley gets there uh in the extended version, you see the face hugger on his face and Newt screaming her head off. Uh, and so you pretty explicitly know what happened. And Alan Dean Foster, even though he was tasked with putting uh, that back into the book, he does it with a defter touch. He has them go out and find the ship. And he has the conversation about, should we go into the ship? I don't know. It could be dangerous. Yeah, but this could be this huge windfall for us. Like, this could be the, the moment we become rich. And then we cut to, oh, my God, there's some sort of problem on Asheron. We don't know what's happening there. So it felt like Foster was being like, look, I get what you want to do, James Cameron, but, like, someone has to reel you in a tiny bit. I think that's a pretty bold statement. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, James Cameron, who showed up and made, like, the perfect action movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, um, in script writing circles, Aliens is is considered a sort of model script. Um, It's it's 
um, it's really well thought of. It's um, uh, it, it's taught in terms of understanding story for film and things like that. Um, I think I, I wonder how much of what you're saying is because of the difference in medium. Uh, in a novel, we get we get the 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 interior world mm-hmm. of the characters, so we can go into that uh, a little bit a little bit more. And for novelizations, it needs to be because we're working with such sparse bones, and we've got a page count that we that we have to reach. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not, sh- I'm not sure you're being entirely entirely fair here. I, I, all I meant is that that omission is interesting. That, he, that mm. Foster doesn't try to write the scene of Newt seeing the face hugger on her dad's face and sort of like screaming her head off. It just mm. seems like an intentional omission. Now, I should add, I've been wrong before, and I'll do it again. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> is, is that bit not in the book? He said, because I read the book earlier on this week. But, um, it, goes from, it goes from, we're going to go in the ship, than the argument between the husband and wife to mm. something's wrong on the planet. Isn't there a scene with Newton, her brother, where they're like, where are our parents? Mm-hmm. Why aren't they back yet? Right? Okay. Uh, yes, I think so. Wow, this would be bad if I was just patently wrong. Hold on. I, 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 ha- I have the book here. Talk yeah. amongst yourselves. Uh, I, I, what will work for you is I'm rubbish at finding things when there's pressure. <laughs> So well, no pressure. Uh, we, I mean, yeah. there are certain points in the book with like notable omissions in like dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. Some of which are like definitely like Game Over Man, right? Is like an onset Bill Paxton right. touch, right. which is now like an iconic part of the movie. But even like Get Away from Her, You Bitch, is not in the book in that way. Which right? Do you think that was a like a thought of on the day? Adding bitch to that line? No, I don't think that was thought of on the day. <laughs> Like that line rhythmically even needs an additional word at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't fully remember from the script, but I'm pretty sure the bitch is in there. And I wonder if this is sort of like as Gavin was saying, he read it as a child. Mm-hmm. If Alan Dean Foster was like, I understand kids are going to read this. Murder by aliens is fine, but they can't be exposed to the word bitch. Totally. Or to fit the meter, have you thought that maybe in the script originally it was stay away from her, please? <laughs> no, I haven't thought that. Um, well, that, that was actually a question I was going to ask you guys. Does your version of the books have swearing in them? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, no, there's no swearing in mine. And uh, this yeah. this was the thing that I think shocked me the most, having returned to this book. Um, Thirty verbal verbal uh, years later, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, I, 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 I was sitting there going, "Did I get a junior version of the book?" <laughs> it does feel written for a younger audience, kind of. This this is our gateway drug to really really frightening and violent films. This is a recurring thing because when we did the Sixth Sense a few weeks ago. The Sixth Sense novelization was not labeled as a junior novelization, and it had incredible contortions to avoid swearing. And, like, at one point, they just said that um, Bruce Willis was being funny instead of drunk. (laughs) They just didn't didn't want to bring up the concept of intoxication. (laughs) But, like, early on in this book, you've got something bursting out of somebody's chest, and that's all right. (laughs) Right. 
a bishop gets torn in two, people get cocooned, you know, there's somebody else who gets another alien bursting out of their chest and then gets set on fire, and that is a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but there's no swearing, and I'm like, what's going on here? It's very strange. Can I just say, jumping back to uh, Ripley's daughter and the what what the book adds about how uh, she had a daughter and now 70 years have passed and her daughter is deceased. Uh, one thing I really like is when she is shown a photo of her daughter, where so many other movies would go, I could see in her eyes that it was my girl. Oh, my little Stephanie or whatever. She'd grown up. Uh, Ripley just looks at the photo. She's like, who is that? That doesn't mean anything to me. Like, she, she, she has some line about, I didn't recognize her at all, which just struck me as more realistic than Hollywood usually is. Well, I, I, don't, I, I, I mean, Cameron, who, of course, wrote the script, I don't think he makes much in the way of concessions. Concessions to... Um, to anything other than <laughs> sure. his vision. Have you, have you, um, I, I've watched some quite a few documentaries about aliens over the uh, over the years but did you see the most recent um films that made us on netflix i have not uh aliens is in the new series it's well worth a watch um it was a deeply deeply un unhappy set um uh there was a huge um sort of cultural battle between um the american director and producer Galen Hurd, mm -hmm. some of the cast members and the British crew. Uh, much of the problems came around tea breaks. Which <laughs> <laughs> oh, is the most British reason to, to That sounds to have like a something fight. I would say as a joke and you'd be offended. Not something that would right, be uh, true. Um, <laughs> well, no, what happened is it was uh, union rules that they had to have a tea break. And, of course, if Cameron was setting up a shot or ready to film and then everything stops for tea, he, um, he, he was going nuts. Um, he fired the director of photography and he fired a really, really um, popular 1AD, uh, assistant, first assistant director, um, and at which point the crew walked out and the actual i really do go and watch it's fascinating but the hero of the piece is um sigourney weaver who as an actor went and negotiated with the crew got cameron to stand down and apologize which is not something he's known uh, known <laughs> for doing and yeah got and got the film going again but it's a very interesting watch yeah i was also uh reading about how there was just a general negative energy on the set because people were hating on the movie before it came out because they were hating on the idea of taking like an artsy horror film and actionizing it that it was one of those things where it had been like decreed like pre pre-decided that it was going to be bad jokes on them it absolutely smokes no totally yeah totally uh, and and holds up which is astonishing some of the, like, learning a little about the movie, like, there's a shot where one of the aliens gets squished and just, like, a whole egg yolk comes out. Like, which is, like, it looks amazing. And knowing <laughs> that that's what it is, um, now every time I watch the movie, I'm like, there's that little egg yolk. What a great, like, practical effect on a small-scale model. Like, exquisite, beautifully done. That, like, level of ickiness, I felt, was not present in the novelization. 
Like the mm. one thing I would say about the writing and the novelization is it's like pretty straightforward, pretty factual. Um, not a lot of like flourishes for horror. Um, and that like level of goopy goobiness is certainly was I, I didn't find to be super present, which I missed. I I I think the novelization, Alan Dean Foster handles the action very well. But um the 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 final sequence of Newt going miss from when Newt goes missing to the power loader fight seems to happen very quickly. Oh my it happens god. In about the last yeah, 20 I, pages of the book. I was looking at what I had left being like, surely he just excised yes. the whole climax then. <laughs> because yeah. I'm done with this book. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it seemed to go very, very, uh, very quickly. Um, now, this was but, not the Cameron book, because you, you mentioned at one point, Gavin, in a different conversation, that there was a, a Cameron book where he felt like the the novel made the violence far too brutal. Was that a Terminator? Yeah, that was um, Sean Hudson, who is a uh, a British horror author. Um, uh, it was uh, it's very popular, certainly over here in the eighties um, during the kind of the the, the heyday of the the schlockier literary literary horror. Um, uh, he wrote it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he was writing it from a horror writer's perspective because mm -hmm. at the, I mean, at the end of the day, that film was very much a science fiction film, but it's set up very much like a slasher movie, right? Um, so I kind of see, you know, where he got that, uh, where he got that from. But yes, apparently uh, Cameron wasn't happy with how violent it was. Mm -hmm. And um, I think because that I do have a copy of it, and I've got you know my original copy again, which I got because it's 1984, and the uh, people are unreasonable about letting 11-year-olds watch um, 18s in in the UK during the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, I believe it was subsequently. I, I suspect um just before the release of terminator 2 i believe it was taken off the market and another terminator novelization was done i might be wrong about that because the terminator novelization that is really expensive and like impossible to get is not it's a different guy's name it's not sean hudson that yeah. just astounds me because it means that the one that isn't even the most rare is like valued very highly so yeah. that's that's interesting to me. Um, I, I agree with you, though. I think that, or whoever, whomever said it, that I think that Aliens, this book, does a really good job of translating the action from screen to page. But un unlike a lot of action books we've read, it doesn't plus it up or make it like more visceral. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it really is a pretty one-to-one -one, uh, mapping. And, and the thing I like about Alan Dean Foster is that instead of making the violence, you know, more upsetting or instead of going into a lot of detail about it, he is really good about like ratcheting up tension. And I'm going to I'll find that line. He has that chapter that ends with Hicks poking his head up through the ceiling and whatever line it is to describe all the aliens coming at him is like amazing. I mean, that's the moment for me in Aliens. Like, the whole mm -hmm. movie's fun, you're having a good time, you're worried about these people, and then, like, from that second where he pops up through the ceiling and there's just, like, a swarm of 
aliens coming at him to the end of the movie is just like solid gangbusters, no breaks, amazing, fun stuff. You lose half your friends and then you throw a guy out the window. I always forget that Paxton just gets owned in that room, that that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's so unceremonious. Yeah, it's so that's like I I really like Hudson as a character. Like that type of character in an alien movie, the guy who is scared is always my favorite guy. Um, and I think Paxton is amazing. Was and there like, even did that did that um, archetype even exist before the that character, or uh, did Paxton make the terrified guy shitting his pants trope? I mean, I think he gives it a special kind of life. For sure, um, but I it, even in the first Alien, I think like Harry Dean Stanton is doing some of that to an extent, or like the girl, the other girl on the Nostromo crew is like so fucking scared, <laughs> um, rightly so. And I appreciate having that element of someone who is like, actually, this is scary. This is not easy. We are not going to make it out of this. We're all going to get fucking murdered. And it take like the arc of Hudson, which I think is good in the novelization. Actually, where like he is described as like not actually like a soldier he's like a tech guy yeah he really is like on his way out of the military and is like absolutely i cannot do this i don't want to be here and hicks has to like pull him back into being brave and the moment that he is brave again the aliens drag him through the floor and kill him which Um, which which suggests he had the right idea all along (laughs) yeah just run and hide definitely and he his dream is to have a bar that was a nice little thing they added in the book is he just wants to own a bar and uh, he can like tell war stories maybe this says like really bad things about me but like when i read the part about him wanting to own a bar and i was thinking of paxton's performance i was like this is definitely a guy who the grass is always greener for, and he's like not thinking through all the frustrations of owning a bar. <laughs> Almost certainly. certainly. I can just yeah. imagine him two years from then having lived through this, just being like, just being like, the sales tax in New York is how much? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, well, perhaps. But I mean, you know, in the big scheme of things, um, dealing with New York sale tax, um, having a creature put its teeth through your skull, you know, it yeah, swings think, and roundabouts, uh, I suppose. Once you've survived the xenomorphs, like. <laughs> right. And, and to his credit, he is pretty chill and happy go lucky until he switches. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that, that's, that's part of the charm. Uh, and that's and that's it's in the book and it's in the extended issue where he does that uh, the, uh, that whole great big long speech about how dangerous they are, what hard people they are, and things like that, uh, which suggests that he's only ever seen combat when it's not been that challenging. He's been doing <laughs> the future equivalent of invading Grenada or something like that. <laughs> Uh, and the first time, you know, the, the uh, I, I will that swear on this. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 definitely. But the first time the shit seriously hits the fan, he just completely loses it. Okay, which let's, I for let's one, note the time there to cut that out. <laughs> which I, for one, think is a deeply reasonable response. Oh, yeah. definitely. I mean, he has so much bravado. I mean, and coupled with Hicks, who is real strength and courage. Um, like to come out of that first shit show uh, in the hive where Hicks is like, you need to stop. You got to stop. You're making it worse for everybody. And Hudson cannot pull it together. Um, I mean, that's 
that's what makes the movie so rich or like those performance elements. Uh, and that not to say that it isn't in the novelization, but I do sort of miss, for me, it wasn't quite as rich reading it as watching like those two actors really like carry strong characterizations. Yeah. And um, um, uh, Michael Bain wasn't going to play Hicks. It was going to be James Remar. Yeah. Crazy. Oh. Mm. Michael Bean is so perfect. <laughs> like James, wait, yeah. James Remar, the very, tall skinny man or am i thinking of a wrong person uh he was uh, one of the actors in warriors i think he was the uh, the, the main guy in warriors oh Wonder, i was definitely like, thinking of the wrong guy yeah. who's the yeah. who's the villain in la confidential that's definitely yeah <laughs> okay so they're realizing that all these dots are upon them but they can't see any of the aliens and it says his eyes met ripley's and the same realization hit them simultaneously. Both bent their heads back, and they angled the trackers in the same direction. The beeping from both instruments became a numbing buzz. Hicks climbed onto a file cabinet. Slinging his rifle over his shoulder and clutching the flamethrower tightly, he raised one of the acoustical ceiling panels and shone his flashlight inside. It illuminated a vision Dante could, could not have imagined in his wildest nightmares, nor Poe in the grasp of an uncontrollable delirium. End chapter. They're not going to tell us what's up there. You got to read on. That is such a rich description because I think especially later alien movies really lean into like the writhing pile of aliens sort of. Right. Um, which is like a really creepy hellish, like Dante is just right. Like Poe is just right. Those are the references to give you like the level of soul terror that you should totally. be feeling in that moment. And that the aliens look like feeling. they're from a William Blake painting. Like, it's yeah. just like, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's exactly the the feeling, yeah. I, I, have to, I have to say, I sort of read that passage somewhat cynically, but I think it had... <laughs> I think it had more to do with my experience than Alan Dean Foster's because I just read that and thought, yep, he's desperately trying to make up words there. <laughs> I mean, there is, like, there's so few elements like that in the book that it, for me, when it showed up, I was like, I like this, but the rest of the book isn't this flourishy. It's not quite as written. Um, like, like this touch, but why is it here? <laughs> And it might be uh, hard to count as we get towards the end of the story. Yeah, I, I was reading it. I also think it's unfair because, I mean, uh, for what we said about how quickly the the last part um, uh, last part went on, I, 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 can, can we just take a minute to talk about um, uh, Michael Bain because um, the character of Hicks, um, uh, the character of Hicks. Uh, I feel is kind of extraordinary for the time period that came, came out because uh, obviously Sigourney Weaver is the lead. Um, but at the time that this came out, um, you know, action films, uh, the, the kind of the style of action films at the time was army of one. So it's, you know, people like, um, uh, Stallone and Schwarzenegger just killing everybody on their own in increasingly more ridiculous ways in larger numbers. Um, but it was very macho. It was very sort of male to the front. And throughout this, um, Michael Bain just supports and supports and supports and supports. He supports Ripley. He supports um, all the Marines about him. Uh, and it was a very, very unusual 
characterization for uh, a male action um, character in the 1980s and all the more welcome for it. And I, I think, you know, uh, the reason that some of these films hang around and other films don't and some of them are still considered good films and others are considered kind of... Um, uh, nostalgic nonsense or whatnot is the ones that work. Um, you, you've got a lot of ingredients working together, but I think kind of the most important thing about them is they've got a beating heart at the center of it. You know, they've got these human relationships, which makes the action mean a lot more than, you know, say in a Rambo film or Commando or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I agree I, completely. I mean, Hicks is like a miracle. And I think the conversation like James Remar, who is like an older, harder looking guy, would have been so different, even if he was still, I mean, like as scripted, Hicks is supportive and kind and gentle. But like, it would have been so different compared to Michael Bean, who is like kind of skinny, kind of a little guy. He's soft. He's so sweet. And in Terminator 2, he's like a, a gentle little guy. Uh, it's such a special touch that he brings. And then as a side note, in The Abyss, where James Cameron was like, okay, you've been gentle, wonderful heroes for two movies. Now you're going to be an absolutely bug nuts villain. Have fun is exquisite. <laughs> I think he's such a good actor. Yeah. And in the 80s, yeah. he just showed up and like delivered amazing performances that like yeah, made he, his character he, so rich. He's a really, really underrated actor. And um, I, I wonder, because uh, you still see him in things, but I wonder um, uh, if he's not getting a lot of work offers, he should be. But I wonder if he's just very much your actor's actor and he picks and chooses what he wants to do very carefully. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like as he aged, he not to be rude, like his cuteness diminished he's not as cute these days he's like a much more rugged looking older man not older he's like what 60 he's fine but um i think there's something like as men get older if they're not still cute you're like well you can't we're not you're not going to be like our cute romantic lead in an action movie we'll find something else for you and he just like never quite found the fit to mm. keep it going in the same way because he's so stinking cute in aliens he's just like the cutest <laughs> boy <laughs> I mean, in the little but, intro, I did add, like, every single one of the Colonial Marines is, like, a straight-up cutie. Like, all of those characters are likable, they're unique, they have, like, their own little touches, and they're all, like, straight-up hotties. I, that, uh, that, one of the geniuses, uh, one of the genius things in the script, is, uh, and I, I really just rip this off uh, when I'm <laughs> writing, is um, when they wake up, each character has just a line or two connected with whatever action they're doing. And by the end of that line and that little piece of action, you know exactly who each of those is, are. You know exactly <laughs> what they're about, who they are and things like that. And that's, that's brilliant. That's economical writing. Um, so cleverly done. But that's like that has got to be really hard to do as a writer trying to emulate it. Because if I went and wrote a story right now and I was trying to come <laughs> up with one line to en en encapsulate someone, I would end up with somebody being like, you know, I could use a sandwich or like, like you, you still, like, you still have to find what it is. That is the essence of the entire person. That feels like the hard part, right? 
Well, I, I, I guess, but I mean, think about the the uh, the three way interchange between Hudson, Vasquez, and Drake. Mm-hmm. Um, Vasquez, have you ever been? Um, uh, have you ever been mistaken for a man? So smart, ass. right? Uh, Vasquez, no, have you? Badass. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and then Drake goes, uh, you know, it's, it's something like you're bad, and then we establish the relationship and how close the relationship is between the two smart gunners, right? And what's it? Uh, and again, you've got a male and female relationship. There's absolutely no hint of romance. Again, reasonably rare at that point in mm-hmm. in particularly Hollywood um, cinema. But again, you get that relationship just with a couple of lines and a few actions. So, but Mike, I totally agree. And I think it's awesome. But my question is like, for you as a writer, how do you reverse engineer that? If you're writing three characters, <laughs> how do you go, I, oh, uh, I need to do the aliens thing and apply it to your I, characters? I'm just a really good writer as well. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's easier. It's easier when you've got a template. I, I mean, the true the true answer is um, if you really, really know who your characters are. If you've got a solid idea who your mm-hmm. char- characters are, and at the risk of sounding a bit wanky, um, if you sort of have a relationship with your characters, mm-hmm. that's actually it, it, the dialogue actually comes quite easily. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, yeah, and and also I, I plan a lot, which I think makes writing easier. Um, there's stream of consciousness um, uh, writers who would disagree with that, though. So the reason I'm having trouble with it is because I only have the sandwich liking characteristic for that one <laughs> character I was talking about. Yeah, you got to yeah, like uh, personal life. <laughs> <laughs> what else? He doesn't like personal <laughs> uh, I mean, is that is that a character from Good Burger? I. Uh, <laughs> Why not? Yeah. <laughs> realistic, yeah. <laughs> I think speaking of good introductions, we should talk about Bishop, who also has a similar sort of like very fast introduction where you're like, okay, we get him. He is knowingly an android. He is not embarrassed about it. And honestly, he's kind of proud of himself. And he's a nice guy. One of my favorite touches regarding Bishop is that mm-hmm. At the beginning of the film, I understand he gets introduced pretty soon after he shows up, but there's one or two minutes where other characters are being introduced and Bishop is just existing in the background as a member of the crew, which subconsciously tells you that he is a member of the crew on like a moral level, that this is a different situation than the last synthetic that she encountered. Um, So that when you learn that he's a synthetic and eventually learn that he is just completely altruistic, that's already, like, kind of been planted in your head with you just seeing him, like, walking around, chatting with everybody, getting lunch or whatever he's doing in that first scene. And her response to him immediately feels like, whoa, Ripley, calm down. Yes. It's okay. Totally. Um, Though her response is fair, given uh, her experience. And then the riser character, who's like, oh, I didn't even think about it is also one of those little touches of like, we're in a different time period, things are different. These like perfectly sprinkled little hints and clues to like help you understand the world. Yeah, no, there's something about the way that Paul Reiser um, plays that scene where um, his um, concern feels completely false. Yeah. <laughs> yes, totally. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, it's unfortunate because he's, he's, he's one of the most unlikable characters in the film uh, and he does an awful thing. Um, and he's not really one of the people that people, oh yeah, Paul Reiser was brilliant in Aliens, but he plays, he really plays the hell out of that character. <laughs> yeah. He, he has some, uh, and I, I think it's kind of the poster boy for corporate scumbags for, you know, going forward, certainly, certainly in science fiction films. I really like the scene in the book where he and Ripley talk through the logic of getting the alien back to Earth, which I believe is exclusive to the book. Um, because in the movie, she we have the scene, of course, where she and Newt wake up and they've been locked in the in the um med 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 and um they've been <laughs> locked in there and afterwards it comes out, oh, you know, uh Carter Burke was trying to do this and this is how he was gonna get the alien back. And in the book there's a scene between uh, Ripley and Carter Burke where she's like, how would you even do this? How would you even get the alien back to Earth? And he's like, oh, I've got all these different works workarounds. And it sounds really convoluted. And I thought to myself, wow, this is kind of bad writing. Like, he's really trying to work to make us believe that this could happen. But then it turns out to be kind of good writing because they reference later in the book that the conversation with Ripley made him realize he couldn't get the aliens back to Earth. And so he had to basically snug snuggle. He had to snuggle them. He had to smuggle them in human bodies. And I, I just thought I mean, that was an interesting touch. I mean, I suppose it is, it is a strangely internal snuggling when you're <laughs> yes! carrying an alien inside Absolutely. of you. Is that, is that conversation in the script? I didn't get that far in the script. I don't know that it is. I don't remember. Hmm. I'm claiming this one. I believe it's a book exclusive. Exclusive. Okay. I mean, he is... It took me, I think, until reading the novelization to put together that Carter Burke is the one who sends Newt's family out to look for the aliens. I'm confused on this point, and I'd like to ask a question. Okay. How That is said in the movie, at least to the extended version. And okay. in the book, but in the movie, you see other people on Asheron send him out. So how is yeah. Carter Burke involved? My understanding is Ripley wakes up and says there's these awful aliens. And Carter Burke is like, oh, a money-making opportunity. So mm. he calls up Asheron and is like, send some people out to go find this thing. Because I oh. want it. Oh. Uh, and it, not a straight line of explanation of how that happens. And I do think you're right. It's in the extended cut to an extent. Like Ripley says, like, you did this and you're a pig. You're a rat fuck. Correct. Um, <laughs> but I think it took like a, something in the novelization. And again, I don't have my copy in front of me, unfortunately. I can't find it. Like something in that helped me like really like put all that together. Um, and I was like, oh, even worse. Like not only is he taking advantage of a bad situation now, but he created the bad situation. Now that I understand that, I do feel like fixes the my biggest problem with the movie which is that i hate whenever a movie has a like an outright coincidence as the premise and the idea that the aliens would reemerge even within like a decade of ripley being found and waking up was a little too much for me but now i love <laughs> it i love it now it just it's, makes it's... him even grosser and more like scumbaggy 
Definitely. Yeah, it, it's also it's also in the cinema um, uh, release. Um, Maybe I'm just uh, stupid and I never picked it up. Like that's a real chance too. That I yeah, like it's it's the bit where um she goes directive signed carter j burke and the uh, and that that's in all versions uh, in all versions of it yeah it is a bit well no it's a bit blink and you miss it um but but this is uh, this is kind of what i was saying about um uh, uh cameron he doesn't make much in the way of concessions so you know you either keep up or you don't which i appreciate like i'd rather mm be treated that way than be treated like a stupid viewer who needs their hand held. Like I'll mm. pick up, I'll watch it. I'll get it eventually. And those are little things like that are like, that's what makes rewatching a movie or rereading a book. So rewarding is there's more things yeah. to pick up on. I was really blown away by how little they gave us of the, the meeting that Ripley has with the executives and everything at the beginning of the movie in the movie. It's like, She's in a boardroom. They say she sucks. Everyone walks out. It's so quick. And in the book, it's like, you know, her back and forth and why don't you believe me and blah, 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 blah. These are all the reasons you're unfit to be blah, blah, blah. And we're stripping you of your license and all this stuff. And in the movie, it's just like Ripley wakes up, Ripley bad. And then <laughs> she's like loading boxes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> then, she, then she's driving the uh, future equivalent of a forklift truck. Yes, yes, totally. Which I, which I think would be a, a less impressive fight at the end of it. She'd just come out with a forklift truck to face the alien queen. Yeah, just run over it. <laughs> <laughs> Different um, from having to like, walk over there in this big thing. <laughs> Um, I, I think uh, the, the the scene in the boardroom, the, uh, it's there's a, a, a rule to do with script writing of um, you try try and come to a scene as late as possible and then try and leave as early as possible. This um, so mm. you just you, you have to provide enough information that people know what's going on, but anything more you're labouring the point, and that's right. kind of a general a general rule of. Of, of script writing in as much that scripts have rules. Um, uh, if you ever want to see somebody completely ignore that, watch, uh, watch a, la a later Quentin Tarantino film. You think he over-explains? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I think his... Uh, <laughs> you're just determined to get me hated on social media. I just, I just, yeah. I, I'm, I'm down for you to dis... Tarantino, I just don't understand the diss, what it's saying right now. Um, so I, I, I think he labors his dialogue. I think, uh, I think oh, he writes sure. stage, stage plays rather than films. Um, that said, there is some genius stuff in there, like the beginning of Inglorious Bastards, which is quite a long scene, but it's just the tightening of a screw, mm -hmm. and it keeps on getting tight and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I uh, I think he's a very self-indulgent filmmaker, but he's been allowed to be a very self-indulgent filmmaker. I think his his greatest moment was Reservoir Dogs. Um, oh, I disagree which, so strongly. Which uh, a conversation the, for another time, probably. Yeah. I also am <laughs> yeah, extremely yeah, pro Reservoir yeah. Dogs. It's like one of the yeah. best. Yeah. <laughs> but also speaking of directors who were eventually allowed to just do whatever the hell they wanted, James Cameron. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a kind of a miracle how well constructed Aliens is. Like, mm -hmm. there's really even in we've discussed. There's like some fat in the the director's cut, the extended cut, obviously because they cut it out, and the theatrical is still very good. 
Um, but it really is like, even so, like it's fast, it's tight. I don't feel like there's a lot of wasted space. The extra stuff is just like character moments and emotional beats, which I'm never personally mad about. Um, but that's my, you know, interest as a viewer and a reader. Well, and it, again, I think that's why it, it stands, uh, those personal beats, those character moments, as I think is why it stands to the test of the, the test of time. And at that point in his career, he had uh, once, um, you know, one success under his belt after I think being removed from the Piranha 3D film um, as a director, um, but he um, he could not get away with just doing whatever he wanted at that moment in his career. Yet he pretty much, I mean that that thing is a tribute to his vision, however unpleasant it was for everybody involved to get there. Um, uh, speaking of not. Alan Dean Foster, like not editorializing a lot, which I feel like we just kind of touched on. Um, I, what do you what do you think of his of his actual writing? Because I, I feel like I feel like when he does take a little bit of a frill, it's it's good. Like I, I I'm looking here. Let me. Uh, I want to find exactly where it is, but the description that he has when they find the people encased in the shit and you know living and the kill me part that that's like very affecting. And I think that he does, in a plot way, he's, like, very constricted. He does the movie. But in a prose way, I think he's having fun. I think he is, like, bringing some life to it that is exclusive to the book. Dead silence. <laughs> Everyone disagrees. I, I was not very impressed with the writing. Um, I found it, like, just kind of, like, doing the job. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't like add a lot to me to what I was reading and I really felt like you just took the script and you said and then we're doing this and then this happens and there's some of those flourishes which I do agree are good but on the whole I was like eh, it's okay I don't think I'm ever going to read it again it didn't like activate my heart muscles or my intellect for having a little bit extra or, like what an interesting way to present that information which I, I like to have so that's my feeling I, on it <laughs> I, I think my problem is less Alan Dean Foster and more my head um, because uh, it's just, this is this is you know what I was saying earlier on about the odd way I came to novelizations which was reading them because I couldn't get to see the get to see the films when you're doing that you're running the, what you think is on the page as a movie in your head once you've seen the movie it's very difficult for me to then go back read this and not think about the movie. Yeah, I think that's what's happening with me too, is the uh, movie is so good and so uh, full of interesting like visual flourishes that the book doesn't feel like it's living up to that. And I and I don't think that um, uh, uh, Foster's or Alan, as we're now apparently calling him, ADF. I don't think... Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't think that his issue as a writer um, so much as, um, as I think we, we mentioned earlier, probably only saw the script. Mm -hmm. um, might not even have seen any set photos. Because uh, to me, what's missing in the book is the atmosphere. And if you're not given the opportunity to find that atmosphere, it, it, it becomes tricky. And I mean, even, uh, yeah, if if... Yeah, you know, from my perspective, if I prefer the 
the theatrical cut to the extended cut, anything that's in the book that's added on feels like padding to me. And again, I, I think that's probably an unfair criticism of um, uh, ADF's work. Um, because I, 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 I think he was sort of playing the, 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 the hand he was dealt, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. I mean, I definitely feel like the novel feels like based on a script without a lot of room to like make up whatever he needed to make it work. It, it does feel very skeletal that way. Which again, yeah, as you say, not his fault, not mm. a knock on him. Um, it just doesn't make the book the best, you know, a book I really want to revisit. That said, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed rereading it, but much of the reason I enjoyed rereading it because it was a trip down memory lane for me mm -hmm. to, to the uh, back to the mid '80s, if you can imagine such a time. So your relationship to the book and the movie that you that you detailed at the beginning of the episode, it was when you j just had the book, you had a very mm -hmm. positive relationship with it, and then once the movie came along, it was friendship with Alan Dean Foster ended. Aliens, the movie, is my best friend now. <laughs> Um, that I mean, that's that sounds terribly harsh. So, I mean, <laughs> Alan, if Alan, if you're listening, the next time you're over in the UK, let's let's have, let's have a drink together. Um, but, but you were you, uh, you were dating the movie once it came out, as opposed to dating the book. Like it became yes. like a it it, it replaced yeah. it. Yes, but here's the funny thing about that. The the book was so important to me mm -hmm. that I mean I I I I've got a, a vast library of books, but I cycle them when I don't think uh, I'm ever going to read them again. Um, I'll, I'll get rid of them. So from that period in my life, I don't have an awful lot of the books. Uh, now that I had then, they've gone to charity shops mm -hmm. or what have you. Um, but I've still kept this, and I've still kept um, uh, Sean Hudson's um, Terminator, and I've got no plans to ever get rid of it. Although one of the interesting things about going down memory lanes, I look after books, but um, this book has a uh, coffee cup stain on it, and there was some <laughs> what looked like hot chocolate inside it, and. Um, <laughs> I know the friend of mine that I lent it to who did that. And Julian, <laughs> if you're listening, I am coming for you. <laughs> I just thought I would publicly, because just who puts coffee on a book? What kind of monster does that? So I've been uh, trying to take better care of the novelizations ever since I started collecting them, like whatever, a year ago. And uh, I found this book, which I assume we all have a similar edition, or I guess Hannah and I probably have a similar edition of. I found it to be... Yeah, I don't have that. <laughs> yeah, mine looks different. Mine is I... just like black, which is kind of cool. Wait, really? This is yeah. mine with the oh. face. Okay, oh. I got a used copy, and the copy I had is just like literally it's totally black on the front, and it just says aliens. Wow. There's God, no I... anything. It's kind of impressive. Andrew, um... yours looks so shiny. It is, yeah. Yeah, yours looks like a brand new print. <laughs> It came, yeah, it came with alien resin on it or whatever. Um, yeah, my my copy is the it has the cover of like the the Audible book, so it's definitely very very um, recent. So um, I was gonna say I found this book physically impossible to read without like the spine deteriorating. I'm trying <laughs> to be more gentle, days, but I'm afraid to say. yeah, yeah. Especially Everything. mass market paperbacks. I think some of them are just printed like pretty cheaply because they assume you're going to read it in the airport and get rid of it. Um, here we go. 
Page 145. I know all of our listeners are reading along with their own copies. <laughs> Which is definitely your copy, and therefore this page means something. Oh, yeah. yeah. They better <laughs> have just the same established, edition. all of us have different editions. <laughs> I'm just Here, amazed. I was saying to, to Hannah, I'm just amazed that none of us accidentally read alien by the same author which would have been such an easy miscommunication to do um okay so the description of the maze cameras and and suit lights illuminated the chamber instead of the smooth curving walls they'd passed earlier these were rough and uneven they formed a rugged baz relief baz relief composed of okay composed of detritus gathered from the town furniture wiring solid and fluid state components Bits of broken machinery, personal effects, torn clothing, human bones and skulls, all fused together with that omnipresent, translucent, epoxy-like resin. Now, he isn't Waylon Drew. He's not, like, doing prose, the author of Willow, Gavin. He's not the, he's not doing prose that are, like, so beautiful that I'm, like, tearing up reading them. <laughs> but he's doing more than a serviceable job. He's putting a little oomph on it. That I that I really enjoy, I guess is my point. I'm glad that you you were into it and you're sticking up for it, Andrew. That's good. It's like kind of weirdly becoming my role this season to be like actually <laughs> book good though. I like the book. I will say like <laughs> I just double checked my like Goodreads review of Aliens, um, which is a statement on the descriptive writing of Aladdin Foster, which is just Hudson being described as jaunty. I love it. <laughs> I don't want to say he's a bad writer. He's obviously not a bad writer. He's a very talented writer who's doing something with this story that I'm glad exists. I would be devastated if this book didn't have a novelization. And this novelization is like very functional. I'm just not sure that it's like in the tiers of novelizations. It doesn't really like reach the heights for me. Mm-hmm. When I would love it too, because like literally, like these are my best space friends. Like <laughs> Aliens is a movie; it's like a comfort film. I put it on. I spend two and a half hours with my best space friends. I love them, and then I feel great, you know. Um, and I, I wanted the book to give me that feeling. <laughs> I, I do think that just aesthetically, the book is is a bit of a tough read because it's so description heavy that like, it's just one of those books where a page takes a while to get through, if that makes sense, which isn't to say that it's bad in any way. I love the book. I actually really loved it, but it is one of those books where you're like, Oh, I have a 10 page chapter to read. And that might be like a 40 minute commitment. Cause it's just very dense, which is not the experience of the movie, which is like a roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I, and I think that's one of my bigger problems with it mm-hmm. um uh, is is that density but again i think that density is um uh, a poor novelist desperately uh, trying to turn you know 10,000 how however many words in the script into um uh, i reckon that's 60 70,000 uh, words uh, on uh, on the page mm-hmm. without 
having the license to change it around too much and not having all the other information that we had watching the film like the sound like the models you know like the like the actors uh, etc one of the things i noticed about the books is hicks becomes a little bit more of a hard man um and i wonder if if that was in some way connected to the um, the initial casting of James Remar. Um, I have to think so. I mean, I think Hicks is yeah. written as like stoic, more stoic than Michael Bean plays it. Yeah, yeah and, uh, um, and uh, yeah, there's a couple of times where he's described as... and says like, yeah, but we should do what you say, but... yeah. Uh, he's described as being dangerous or being a hard man or something like that. And yeah, sure he is. I mean, yeah, that's Drake. It's not, it's not Hicks, you know, or it's even Vasquez. We haven't talked to, uh, talked enough about Vasquez is awesome. I forgot. And I've seen aliens probably three times. I straight up forgot that Gorman is a character. (laughs) Do they say his name in the movie? Because when I watched the movie this morning, I was like, I don't, I don't think I ever would have picked his name up from the film. They do. They do yeah. say his name. Okay. So I'm just a big viewer. He's also so. unconscious for a chunk of the movie. Right. So, like, you lose him as a character for a while, then he shows up right at the end to, like, die with Vasquez, and they reconcile their issues with each other in the right. last second. So I think it's okay to be like, oh, I forgot about him. He doesn't make the same kind of impression as the rest of the colonial Marines mm-hmm. do. That, that's what I'm really speaking to. Yeah, is I feel like he's given decidedly less characterization. He's just a bad commander. Like, he Mm -hmm. is in over his head, bluffing through it, and then he gets knocked out by alien Uh, stuff. Mm -hmm. And and he's constantly being victimized by Vasquez, which, um, you know, don't bully people, but it's quite funny. Um, (laughs) She's right about him. Like, the moment they emerge, she's like, I'm going to kill that guy. He didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He got my friends killed. She's right. She's totally in the right to be mad at him. Andrew, when you say you've only seen it three times, you mean like this month, right? Yeah, yeah. I well, yeah, so, right? Gavin, you know that night you said where you watched Aliens three times? That's like yes. that's that's a uh, that's a Saturday night for me. So <laughs> I'm just saying that I've I've met this week's quota. <laughs> Halloween, you got to squeeze in a couple other things. Yeah, I yeah. I have a confession to make, which is that when I watched this movie at a Gavin G. Smith watches Aliens for the first time age. I, I thought it was, like, really disappointing compared to the first film. Like, I was really, really oh. let down. And I I was watching them with, you know, there were four Alien movies out at the time, and I, I watched basically the two movies, like, two nights apart. And I just felt, and I, I have a different opinion now, but as a kid, I just felt like it had just done a bigger Alien. Like, the, like the first movie had just been blown up. Like, it was, like, more people more aliens and then at the end when she when she threw the alien a bigger alien at a bigger airlock i was like i hate it (laughs) (laughs) okay well i I don't think we could be friends anymore now i mean this is devastating news yeah i've 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 come around on it but i i also had pretty terrible taste when i was like 13 or whatever um i just i I wanted you're not wrong that is alien but bigger but mm-hmm. that's what I like about it. Like, I want more of the thing I already liked. Turn it up to 11. Give me more people. Give me more aliens. Give me more. Yeah, it's maybe it's disappointing that you can just shoot an alien to death. 
but man, it rules when they get shot to death and they explode acid goo. Like that. I actually love that because I, <laughs> my least favorite genre is like supernatural villain horror. Because it's just like, he's over here, now he's over here. Now he popped up in my dream. I can't get away from this guy. It's like, there's no <laughs> rules. I actually love when they just mow down an alien with a gun. It's like, okay, so we can win. That gives this thing stakes. But um, then there's just too many of them. But yes, totally. No, I- Like when it's my, just one alien, you can shoot it. It's cool. Oh no, there's a thousand aliens. Right. Like, that really works for me. No, I like- I, 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 I just want to say before we move on that I I think that or my opinion has changed a lot because I think that actually Aliens does do a lot of stuff really different. But the way that it does things really different from the first movie is in the interpersonal play between the characters. And as a teenager, I was watching it just being like, have a really different plot. That's my one metric for creativity. <laughs> I, mean, I I I actually think the two films are so different that they're they're, they're practically different genres. So, oh, definitely. Um, I mean, there's a the, there's a big conversation about um, film science fiction as to whether or not it is a genre or whether or not it's just a setting. Now, it certainly can be used as a setting, but I, I think it is a genre. But I mean, at its heart, Alien is a horror film, and at its heart, Aliens is a war film. Wait, so just to play devil's advocate, what how what even is the opposite perspective that it's not a genre? Yeah, because um so uh, it depends on how it depends on how you define it. Now, um at its heart, it's sort of in terms of structure, uh the film Aliens is kind of uh, it's the same story as Assault on Precinct 13 or um <laughs> uh or was but <laughs> yeah. Uh, or um, Fort Apache, uh -huh. you know, you bring in an alien other, whether or not that alien other is Native Americans or um, gang members or actual aliens, uh, and then they attack a group of people who are trapped in a place. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, I mean, that's that's just a, a sort of structural similarity. Uh, yeah. Now, to a certain extent, the being in space, colonial marines, the uh, the aliens are kind of trappings of that. You know, they're, they're, you, know, you could take substantially the same story, set it in all sorts of different places and all sorts of uh, times. So that means some people say, well, then the science fiction elements are just the setting. Interesting. So in order for it to be a science fiction in genre, the, the plot of it would have to revolve around a science fiction concept. Yeah, I mean, the way I, the way I look at it is, I mean, I'm, uh, I've, you know, Aliens is obviously a science fiction film, but the way I look at it, if you're going to be, if you're going to take that response, the science fiction film is something that can only exist within the genre of science fiction. Uh -huh. So, for example, Blade Runner, um, which has all the trappings of a film noir, because its key thing is about what it means to be human in the face of technology, right, right. that film cannot exist in any other genre uh, than um, science fiction. Right. Wow. Huh. So you're take saying that it is a genre in this case 
is is what I, I mean. I, I, I the whole thing is a bit of a, a, a sort of spacious argument. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's got aliens and spaceships in it. So sure, it's it's it, it's science fiction. But I mean, that is a perspective. Um, I think I mean, it's so much I, of I, like I, Ripley's experience is like being out of time, being like in a technologically different world, which all feels science fictiony to me. Um, I, I don't know. It can be both. It can be everything. Like, oh, it's a I, loose term, right? So, so, sort of sort of the most science fiction thing that happens to her is she sleeps through her daughter's life. Because that, yeah. that can't happen in any other, uh, any other genre. But it's kind of, it's a, it's a subplot rather than the main plot. Mm-hmm. Just be, be, before again, I feel like whenever I uh, speak to people where there's an audience, I'm just trying to get people to hate me. <laughs> Aliens is a science fiction film. Yeah, I, but I mean, that is a perspective. I mean, we started the episode by saying we prefer aliens to alien, period, which yeah. is already like a hot ticket opinion. I, I I actually get that as a perspective, but I mean, it, it really it really does feel like um, you know you're comparing oranges and lemons. They're, they're, they're two very 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 different uh, different things. And although I prefer aliens, I think it's really important that both of them uh, exist and that both of them were directed by the people who they were directed by. I mean, I wish that Alien 3, a David Fincher movie, was more in the vein of David Fincher movies. Like, I, yes. it would be fascinating to watch a Fincher alien story as opposed to what Alien 3 is. Um, which I don't think really fits into like his interest as much, though it is yeah. very bleak. Which I, love. <laughs> I mean, it's all uh, it's. Uh, um, I, I I mean, I I think if he'd been more in his stride when he made that, because I mean, I think at that time he'd mostly done music videos. Yeah, it's like his first or second like movie movie. Mm. But yeah, it, it almost inevitably would have ended up as the alien as a serial killer. <laughs> That's kind of like all that guy makes. Um, that I mean, that's unfair. But he has made a surprising amount of serial killer films. Isn't there a new version of that that people people keep yes, on um, telling me? I don't think I've seen it. I just watched like the version that's on yeah. HBO, and I was like, it's physically hard to watch, and it's yeah. mean spirited. And like, I had always heard like, okay, it kills Hicks and Newt immediately which is yeah. sad. I didn't understand that the movie then spends a long time talking about how dead they are. It has an autopsy scene on Newt. It's like gruesome about how dead they are in a way that is mean-spirited, <laughs> which I didn't care for. It has just about every British character actor who was alive at the time <laughs> in that film. It is such a frustrating way for Alien 3 to begin because... W- uh, aliens begins with her being found floating and doesn't end with like a disaster. Do you know what I mean? It's weird for them to like repeat basically the beginning of aliens in a way that where they have to force it. And and again, it's another um, you, uh, again, sort of with a, any kind of fiction story, you, you, you give the characters what they deserve and um Hicks and Newt didn't deserve that, you know. There's got to um, be a way to get them out of the story without 
slaughtering them. Yeah. Like, said it five years later where Hicks and Newt are like, we live on Earth now. Have fun, Ellen. See you later. Like, it is insane I, that it's like the back to the future construction of like every adventure this person must have must take place over a weekend. They get no breaks. <laughs> oh, poor Ellen. Yeah, her life is just like horror on horror for like four days and then she leaps into lava. Although I guess uh, presumably she was like loading boxes for a while before Carter Burke asked her to come join. She deserves like a solid month, like hooking up with Hicks, having a relaxing time on a beach. <laughs> I mean, it's a, I, uh, I imagine doing it any other way where she's not forced to confront the aliens. It's <laughs> like, hey, Ripley, we've got another aliens problem. Well, best of luck with that. Yeah, man. she would never say yes to that ever again, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Has uh, has there ever been a film series that has done uh, a story where people are like terribly traumatized and then the next movie is just the beach movie where they recover? <laughs> I don't think so. I wish. I mean, this is like, we spoke, we briefly mentioned Rambo. The first Rambo is like a man who is already traumatized goes through another series of traumatizing events and then is like, okay, at the end of Rambo 1, I was like, I hope that the next movie is like, he gets to go home, he gets therapy, someone takes care of him. No, he just has to do more murders. And I said, I don't want to watch that. Yeah, Rambo, <laughs> Rambo 2 is the craziest escalation, where it's like, the first one was like, just a, about, you know, being a vet and how much it messes with your mind. And then the second one is like, send him back to Vietnam and let him kill a bunch of people. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I think the first film was pretty solid. I really it's liked awesome. the first I film. I love yeah. First Blood is fantastic. And it's like a, it's very much like an exploration of like PTSD and like how we don't take care of our veterans. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, that series just becomes murder, uh, which wasn't for me. I think First Blood nah. Part 2 is one of the funniest titles to a movie of all time. <laughs> I mean, is it funnier than Alien? What if there were more aliens? <laughs> they, they cover that a little bit in the films that made us uh, on uh, how, I mean, I, we always used to call Alien 3 Alien Cubed because the three is really yes. small. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know I'm the only one who likes the book. Just kidding. Uh, but, uh, there is there is one more passage I wanted to, to touch on here, which is, um, uh, I got to find it on the page. Uh, vamp, vamp. <laughs> uh, hmm. So uh, what are we at? <laughs> I was trying to think. Just... Like, I feel like there's more to say about how Aliens Three is. Oh, here's something I wanted to say. The way that Aliens, as you were saying, Andrew, starts with her in space floating and ends with her in space floating, but now she has like a boyfriend and a daughter, is really like a great arc for her. That she starts alone. She's really like not interested in meeting new people or getting attached to new people. She finds a little family and they all get to live happily ever after. And then for Alien 3 to be like, actually, absolutely not, <laughs> is a real so issue. Are you, are you reading an attraction then into Hicks and Ripley? Yeah, I think there's, there's, they, they fall in like with each other. Like the part where he shows her how to use the gun is like kind of sexy. And I, I, actually, they're, they're talk about like the intimacy in, love, in the book. Like, there's there's something starting, mm. and if they got to go be on a beach for a few weeks, I think they would kiss. Gavin, you're talking about the part where they where he's showing her how to fire, right? I, uh, 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 Hannah was, but yeah, they actually mentions it in the book that there's an intimacy to what they're doing. Right, right. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, it's clearly um, uh, ADF agrees with you. There's a little something. Maybe it's just like two hot people standing in really close proximity to each other being respectful. But I, which is the ultimate turn on. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the interesting things that there's not much in the way of um, attraction or romance uh, in that film. And frankly, there's not a great deal of room for it. And I appreciate uh, that. Like, I don't yeah. need Ripley to kiss a boy. I, her story is about so much more than that. <laughs> And I've said, a lot of my female friends who love aliens, that's quite important uh, to them. And again, that sort of links back to um, Hicks not being, I'm going to take charge, I'm going to do that. Hicks just being there and supporting everybody around him. If you imagine that role had gone to a less, I guess, a less empathic uh, you know, um, actor, that could have gone horribly wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I, I love that Ripley is not like a romantic character and they, they don't have a romance. Mm. But I like that she could have a romance, like that mm. she's not a cold, like closed off person. She still has emotions. She's still capable of like feeling love and attraction and affection. And so like the hint of like, well, maybe something could happen with Hicks. I'm glad that it doesn't in the movie, but that mm -hmm. it could is something that I like. Hannah, speaking to that, I uh, and also I, I'm sure you're getting tired of me just bringing up the same five movies over and over again. But um, Gavin, have you have you seen Green Room, the 2016 movie? The I have oh, not. Oh, so Recently. neither of you have. But no. it reminds me a lot of of Aliens, which is like I, I won't spoil the whole movie, but the 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 characters who do like survive that movie have absolutely no romance between them. There's not a lick of romance in that film. But just like with Aliens, I get the feeling where I don't need the romance to be there because when the movie ends, it's like, if you went through this together, you can only date each other. Like, sure, yeah. who else are you going to talk to about this shit? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a joke, but like, seriously... Yeah, but there's, there's another side. There's another side to that as well. I mean, what is your anniversary like? Is <laughs> you really want to spend the rest of your life talking about the worst thing that ever happened to you? Yeah. Hey, Hicks, remember this time last year we were almost inseminated. You know, it's just... That's why you have to get married as quickly as possible as like an anniversary override. <laughs> <laughs> Remember this time last year when we were on that beautiful beach? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Having a lovely time together. Yeah, problem solved. I, I mean, I, I mean, you could go to therapists together and things like that. That would be nice, I guess. Yeah, double know. up couples therapy and trauma therapy. Sounds yeah, good. yeah. I've, I've thought about this way too much, but like, <laughs> it, you just imagine there's this whole other movie that's like a relationship drama where the two people that survive a movie like that go and date other people and are like living with other people. And then there's all these fights about like, you, you're you still like going to see her when you like have your bad dreams. And it's like, she's the only person I can talk to about this. And then they are just sort of like forced to get together anyway. But that's, that's the kind of thing that we're starting to see in, you know, the, the long form storytelling we're getting in TV at the moment. 
where instead of episodic things, we're getting, you know, a 10 hour story in 10 different episodes, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are starting to see things like that. And you, you get stuff like that in books, I guess, where you go mm-hmm. a little bit beyond, you know, because I mean, uh, you know, most most films of that ilk, they're about the worst hours or the worst days of your life. Right. Um, you, you would hope, which is why, um, which is why the continuation of the first Blood series is so troubling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what leaps to mind most, in a way that, it, like in Interview with the Vampire, like Lewis and Lestat are just two people who hate each other but cannot. There's no one else. There's no one else who understands yes. them, and they keep ending up back together. And eventually, they're like, fine, I guess this is fine. And Lestat is like a success, and Lewis hates it. Um, but like for care, like, and that's across multiple books. It takes time to get there. I would love to watch the second movie of people just being like, all right, let's unpack the thing we just went through. Can we be normal again? Right, right. Um, I've blanked, but I found the passage. I found Great. the passage I was talking about like 20 <laughs> minutes ago. Um, okay. So this is just when Bishop is like off doing his own thing. He might be in the pipe at this point. Uh, and he goes, uh, he's just thinking to himself. So we're getting some Bishop interiority. One of the questions that particularly intrigued him and which he was anxious to answer involved the definite possibility of an alien parasite attempting to attach itself to a synthetic like himself. His insides were radically different from those of a purely biological human being. Would a parasite be able to detect the differences before it sprang? If not, and it attempted to utilize a synthetic as a host, what might be the probable results of such an enforced union? Would it simply drop off and go searching for another body, or would it mindlessly insert the embryonic seed it carried into an artificial host? If so, would the embryo be able to grow, or would it be the most surprised of the couple as it struggled to mature within a body devoid of flesh and blood? So... I loved that Bishop was just thinking about this as he was, like, crawling. And... It also makes me picture this amazing alternate ending to the movie where the alien goes inside Bishop. It does become some sort of thing that's like a half robot, half alien, and it's all fucked up and it's not scary at all and they kill it. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder, because I mean, that idea that what gets um, uh, what gets uh, inseminated by the face huggers um, uh, changes the end result that has been used in uh, the comics, the graphic novels, Alien the, versus Predator. The, yes, and um, it, it was used in uh, one of the Wildstorm comics. I think I think Stormfront, and I think written by Warren Ellis. I could nerd about this for a while, mm-hmm. um, but uh, one of the things is saying, well, if you uh, you know if you inseminate a superhuman, you get a superpowered aliens uh, out of the 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 inside, and unusually for a comic, and unusually for a crossover, Ellis used this to kill off the entire team. So they just ended that story by having aliens wipe them out. I think. Oh, spoilers! Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, but you wonder if that's where that idea—if that was the genesis of that idea—was people reading, not watching the film, but reading the book. Absolutely, and and like, I, it does make me think. Could you just, if they went into some sort of weaker or less powerful uh, being than a human, would it be like a worse alien? Well, in Alien 3, it comes into a dog, and it's a it's still scary, but it's a four-legged runner. It's not a two-legged upright thing. 
And I feel like there was discussion of an alien sequel where the aliens come to Earth and plant in like zoo animals and create these like horrifying monstrosities. Huh. I feel like that becomes a a different type of movie because it becomes like a like a beast movie almost like a that that feels like it ends up as like a King Kong or something. I do think like the more we redesign the alien, the less scary they become to me. Like the aliens design, which you see the most of, which is just like guy, big head, mouth. I don't need more than that tail, you know. Mm-hmm. And every time they're like, what if it was a little bit more like this? I'm like, I don't want to see more of that. (laughs) Right. I'm happy with what it is. It's scary. It eats. That's good. I I think there is room for an alien earth war film uh, done as a kind of um, earth has effectively fallen and it's a um, post-apocalyptic, a post-apocalyptic movie. Uh, I think it would, I think it would have to be, I think it would need, um, and on top of the game director and on top of the game writer to pull it off well enough to make it really good. And again, if anybody's listening, I am available. Um, I don't terribly feel on top of my game. I might know know a a former director of an alien movie who is like really desperate to keep making them. Really? Well, Ridley Scott. He wants to make like four more. Oh, prequels. right. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> he he wants I, to make at least two more prequels so that there are like four prequels to Alien. I, I thought that, um, is it Bloom Camp who was trying to get an actual sequel to Aliens off the ground with Michael Bean and Sigourney Weaver, oh. who I believe were interested? I think that would have been the answer. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not a Blum Camp really worries me, but I I would love to see the sequel to Aliens with, you know, Hicks and a grown up Newt and Ripley. Like I would love to see that tomorrow. He he's not um, he's not he's not quite made anything that I really really love. But I mean, he's he's only what three or four films in. Some of the out studio stuff he's been doing is quite interesting, but I think he, I think he ha- I think it would be a breakthrough film for him if you see what I mean. Um, although he probably thinks Elysium good. is, yeah, yeah. I, I, I haven't watched like anything. The visual aesthetic for an alien movie. It's his storytelling, yeah. but I'm a little like, well, what what were you thinking with that one? <laughs> I haven't watched any of his films since uh, the big one, whatever that one. The, District Nine. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure about the number, um, but uh, so I think of him as just great because it was a fun movie. <laughs> yeah. Yes, no, it was a, 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 a very, a very clever film. District. That Nine. one's a good one, yeah. and it's all a little. It's a much more mixed bag as we move on. <laughs> I quite like Elysium. Um, I think there are problems with it, but um, it's got a nice aesthetic. Um, uh, got some nice set pieces and what have you. Uh, can, can we talk very briefly about aliens ripoffs? Yeah, sure. Uh, or why not? Films or films like uh, the ripoffs is unfair. So I, I was reminded of this when you mentioned um, uh, Green Room. Um, and have you guys seen Dog Soldiers? Mm-hmm. No. Uh, so Dog. Uh, nodded for the listener. 
Oh yeah, yeah. sorry. Yes, I, I have seen <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> um, uh, Dog Soldiers um, is uh, basically about a group of uh, British squaddies who get lost in the Scottish Highlands and um, uh, find themselves in a situation involving werewolves. And it really, uh, it really is start to finish pretty much set up like aliens, but with British squaddy humor and werewolves. <laughs> um, so uh, to my mind for, you know, uh, taking the idea of aliens and changing it around a bit to make your own film on a very, very low budget, I really do recommend Dog Soldiers. It's oh, I was not structure. expecting this. I was not expecting this to build to a recommendation. Oh, sorry. No, 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 <laughs> it's great. But you were like, let's talk about ripoffs of this genius film. And then at the end, you're like, they rule. Well, I mean, when you start with good bones and yeah. the basic setup of aliens is so strong and the basic dynamic is so strong. Like if you're just like plastering something on top of good bones, you end up with something pretty good. Totally. Unless you're really, you know, making a mess of yourself. But generally, like, yeah, give me movies like Aliens. I really like it. I'm assuming there's an analog for this in uh, writing novels, but uh, a comedian, I forget who it was, has some quote where they're like, of course, stealing people's jokes is bad, but like, it's you're just totally allowed to steal structure and you should do it all the time. Great artists uh, steal. That's what they say. But like to steal the 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 way a thing is structured and the way it pays off. If you if you replace the elements with your own, is still your own ideas. But to execute things in the same way isn't considered theft in that manner. I, I mean, um, uh, I'm probably going to misquote this, but to steal from one person is plagiarism. To steal from everybody is art. You know? <laughs> right. There's a, I saw an interview with Liam Schreiber once talking about like, how do you do Shakespeare when everybody in the world's done Shakespeare? And he was saying like, oh, you just steal what you think is good. Like you owe it to an audience to present them with the best version of this performance. And if you see somebody do something that you think is great, yeah, you should also do it. Your version of it is going to be different because it's yours. But if you're like, oh, that's that line interpretation that is genius, you should do it. And I think that applies to most art. Like if you're... No matter what, your personal touch is going to make it unique. And so if you're stealing or borrowing or using like concepts and structures and things like that, like it can only be to the benefit of the art you create. Is that yeah, fair? Absolutely. I mean, I, I really steal a lot. Um, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I've got, I've got nothing more. Really, I just... <laughs> I, I really steal a lot. I, I was just thinking I should probably stop paraphrasing famous song lyrics as dialogue before somebody catches me and I really get into trouble. But, um, oh, you, you've been using song lyrics as if they're dialogue coming out of uh, characters' mouths. No, I, um, I, 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 uh, every so often in a book, I have one line which sounds a little bit like a um, a line from a famous song. See if anybody notices. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, I really shouldn't, and um, fortunately, I don't think any of my editors listen to this. So, yeah. Mm. Good ideas pop up organically at the same time when different people, and you end up with like. I mean, just saying, I think you can pretend that it just occurred to you beautifully out of, <laughs> you know, the osmosis of the world. <laughs> but, uh, stealing. 
I mean, there's a thing called parallel development where, you know, you often find that a number of people are working on stuff which subject-wise is very similar. And this can be why you get a spate of films along um, uh, similar lines. So it does happen. And, uh, you know, a way to come up with a, uh, a new idea is take an established idea and, and kind of remake it in a different setting. Have either of you ever seen a Pamela Anderson film called Barbed Wire? No. No. You weren't expecting that as a question, <laughs> were you? Okay, so Barbed Wire is about a post a post-apocalyptic bounty hunter um in a um futuristic fascist America. It is also a remake of Casablanca. <laughs> oh my god. I have to <laughs> Yeah, we must watch this. That's amazing. Um, so um I mean, you might have listeners out there going, what's he talking about? I've seen both those films and that's not true, but it really, really is. <laughs> Just structurally, that's, like that's hits the same stuff. beats. Um, it, it, literally, it's about a resistance <laughs> leader trying to get out of a city. <laughs> and Pamela Anderson is the character of Rick, except she, you know, she's got a desert eagle in each hand, and you know she doesn't mind um, shooting at the the futuristic Nazis and whatnot. So, I mean, it... I can't Hannah, wait. Uh, can't speaking wait. to what you were saying about uh, Liev Schreiber doing Shakespeare, there's a mm -hmm. quote from uh, the the Hangover guys that <laughs> I, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I know it's fine. I always found really funny, which is like I'm not like a hangover head, but I saw the hangover in the theater in 2009 and I, I laughed and it was fine and it was good. And then I never saw any of the other ones. But, you know, the second one people say is just like this offensively beat for beat remake of the first <laughs> film. And there was a quote from them where they said, we just we all had a meeting about hangover part two. And we thought, you know what? Our fans love us for what we gave them the first time and it's not it's not our right to take that away from them so we just got to do the first movie again <laughs> I, I mean that was how sequels were done in the 80s a lot you just remade um the film and my favorite one for this and it's not as good as the original but i kind of enjoy it in a sort of cheesy way is die hard too because that really is exactly the same film but much bigger right right it, it's mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the scope just geographically is so much bigger that that mm. sort of alters the plot a little bit because there's a lot there's a lot of like, okay, now we have to send someone to that terminal of the airport. Okay, go run out on the tarmac. But other than that, I get what you mean. Mm. Ghostbusters uh, 2 also is structurally an identical movie. Like, Winston is not in the movie for two-thirds of the movie simply because, like, he's not in the first movie for two-thirds of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Ernie Hudson. Uh, so good, such a shame. But that's a movie yeah. that has always struck me as like, oh, it's just again the same again. Great. Okay. Now those two love it. Obviously, the worst one's Home Alone two, right? It's just the having the <laughs> the having the creepy adult turn out to be helpful twice is so insulting. <laughs> e even to me as okay. a child, I was like, that is. I am not that much of a child. Like I was born. My initial response to you saying Home Alone 2 bad was, Andrew, no, stop. Stop yourself now. Home Alone 2 <laughs> is good. But I, I see what you mean. I, I, I like, I like the part where he has to stick his head in the toilet. That's good. <laughs> that I, I, good. I, 
I find the original Home Alone one of the um, the the uh, one of the the less interesting remakes of Die Hard. I have to say. <laughs> Gavin, and I didn't one of the mean most to... interesting remakes of Die Hard is then uh, Skyfall, right? We like that. <laughs> Gavin, I didn't mean to eviscerate your point about Die Hard 2, which I think is a good point. It just I just feel like it's more clumsily written, if that makes sense. Where it's it's kind of obsessed with people doing things and going places. Um, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, Die Hard... Uh, Die Hard's like Aliens. It's another... Um, it's another film that we still think very fondly of today, and it's not just a nostalgia film, although its popularity of the Christmas film has probably got something to do with it. But um, <laughs> again, it works um, because, uh, you yeah, know, wonderful set-piece action scenes, wonderful performances, particularly from um, Alan Rickman, because if you need a villain, you've just got to go British. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it, it works. And we remember it because there's a beating heart and that beating heart in terms of the relationship gives us stakes, which keeps us interested. It's it's very, speaking of like the that franchise's version of uh, Hicks and Newt dying, it's very sad that that his wife, ex-wife, I, I've only seen Die Hard once, but that she's just out of the picture as of, like, the third or fourth movie. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the third yeah. movie, they talk about her a lot, and the the arc for Bruce Willis is you got to call her. you got to try and fix your relationship. By right. four, they're just divorced. By four, it's like, we did not fix it. I did call. It was a bad call. <laughs> I, I, you wonder if they got divorced because it, it was just too much stress this guy always being in peril it just have a nice day at the office dear <laughs> covered in sweat and it's like you won't believe what happened to me and samuel l jackson today yeah. <laughs> I, she's uh, going again we have kids now what are you doing yes yeah so anyway jumping back into the book gavin g smith I, I, I have a question for you, which is, you you imagine that you have been in a situation where you've been in hypersleep for 70 plus years. You are mm -hmm. awakened and informed that all of your loved ones have passed and that you suddenly have the ability to recommend books you have read to anyone that you'd like. Would you right, recommend, okay. Would you recommend the novel... Aliens by Alan Dean Foster to A, huge fans of the movie, B, people who haven't seen the movie, or C, no one at all? Um, I think I would recommend it to 12-year-olds who haven't seen the movie. I don't know if that <laughs> makes... Does that make me a bad person? We, I, we I, say uh, that on a lot of episodes, to be honest. Right. We end up being so, like, for the eight-year-old out there who just hasn't seen The Sixth Sense, go for it. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think I uh, recommend it to people who haven't seen the film, although uh, this, is, this is assuming that Alien still exists and hasn't had anything digitally horrific done to it um, or hasn't been you know, remade or something like that. Yeah. Hannah Blackman. Yes. You are... Is this going to be a different scenario? Yes. You okay. are <laughs> an alien... Z queen? Uh, yeah. And you're making eggs, and 
<sighs> is this because I'm a woman? I don't love this. Oh, I don't love that either. Damn it. Um, <laughs> you are a... You are a male xenomorph. No, stop. I'll just answer the question. <laughs> Hannah, you can recommend books. Would you? Um, I don't know if I would recommend this one. Maybe, as Gavin says, to children who are interested but haven't seen the movie. I just think it's like such a, a worse version of the movie without a lot to really elevate it on its own merits. Um, I'm not sure I would recommend it. But that being said, there are a bunch of like alien spin-off books, which I am recommending to myself. I haven't read them, but I'd like to read them. Like the world is so engaging. The third is like a lot of them would and will read. I am desperate to um, get a job writing those. Really, really am desperate to get a job writing those. Also, I would very much like to see a YouTube channel of the Alien Queen recommends books. <laughs> I just think that'd like, be a great show. I love, and I feel like I've been on that journey. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you yes. saying that? Are you saying that she read Eat, Pray, Love because she's a woman? I think she oh. goes on an Eat, Pray, Love journey. She's lost her whole family, and she's sent off into space to eat, pray, and love. Okay, I've been wrong. <laughs> so before, they are, and I will, I will be again. So. Um, wait, Gavin. Speaking of that, and I'll I'll do my thing in a second. But you, any word on B shot two? Is it happening? Are you writing the novelization? Um, can you not say? Odd, I, I, no, I can say. I don't know anything about it. Um, I am aware that I think it's been greenlit, hasn't it? It has, but that, that yeah. I think like was greenlit a while ago. So it's there's been like weirdly no news. Uh, nobody has asked me about it. Um, so. Um, and I am telling the truth. So if I'd been NDA'd, I'd say I've been NDA'd, can't talk about it, which is an answer. I was going to say, which is an answer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've been, I, I was well, not offered the part and I was NDA'd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps Sony Pictures is just going around randomly NDAing anybody who's had ever had anything to do with Bloodshot. Um, actually, if like a st if Star Wars had done that when they announced the sequels and they just like NDAed everyone and they were like nobody talk about it, if they had just NDAed random actors, that would have confused everyone in like a way that they would love. You know, they'd be like, yeah, who knows? Like maybe Gary Cole's in it. We NDAed him. Who could say? Who could say? Andrew, <laughs> Andrew, imagine I... if you will, you are a colonial marine about to go on a long journey, and uh -huh. your fellow colonial marines say, "Hey, man, we got a lot of time to kill. Would you recommend a book to me? Would you recommend Aliens: The Novelization?" How long have I been a marine? Uh, <laughs> I am okay. that relevant. So, um, your peers respect your opinions, and they want a recommendation from you. This is the this one's the 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 third bowl of porridge for me. It's it's neither too hot or new, too cold. It's I would recommend this to someone who loved the movie and was seeking more. I I do actually think that this book stands on its own better than most books we have read. Um, I think maybe Willow tops it, as in, like, you could literally read the Willow novelization just as a book. But this basically does that, too, and it's a decent book. It's not so good that I'm gonna say, everyone must read this, and, oh, read it before the movie, even, you know. But I definitely enjoyed it, I think it's really competent, and given that we're bound to cover 
45 more ADFs. It is, <laughs> I, I feel reassured that it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be a slog. Like, I, I, I really enjoyed his writing. So, um, Gavin G. Smith, thank you so much for coming on to Authorized. This was so fun. It was great to have you. Gavin, uh, you've written books, and um, some of them, uh, I'll, I'll just say again, are, of course, Bloodshot, which uh, we can't recommend enough, and um, the new book, Spec Ops Zed. Um, <laughs> but you've also done other things. Why, why don't you, uh, you, you probably don't do this that often. Why don't you plug some early books? They're still out um, there. Yeah, so uh, for people who enjoy um, Aliens, um, as I said at, at, at the beginning of it, um, Veteran and War in Heaven is very much my it's it's my love letter to Aliens, and it's also my love letter to sort of um, um, uh, the cyberpunk subgenre of um, uh, science fiction. Um, Bastard Legion, which is kind of my most uh, military SF, again takes a takes a, a you would uh, though you know the the uh, takes place in the same universe as um uh, veteran and war in heaven and it's the kind of universe that i'd want sid me to of course was the designer on aliens and also the designer on blade runner and tron um it's a universe i'd want sid Mead to design um so that's my sort of level of love and how it's um uh, connected into my writing um most recently i've just had a short story out in an anthology called no more heroes which has nothing to do with any of that because <laughs> it's about um uh it's short story collection about um musicians who are sadly no longer uh, with us and i wrote a short story called motorhead on the orient express and that is available from newcon press on their website Amazing. Uh, well, thank you again for coming on. Hannah, I have good news, which is that I've written an outro for you on the third page oh. of the document. If you would just scroll down and take a look. <laughs> just, I, um, I was just, just going to say thank you very much for having me for oh, your outro. Yeah, of, uh, Hannah, uh, go ahead. Do that was the our outro. pleasure, truly. Um, go so ahead I just and do wanna, the outro. This is so mean. It just says improvise. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> goodbye, everyone. You know, <laughs> no, wait.